Welcome to episode 324 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Michael O'Malley. And Andrew Swafford. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we'll be doing a trilogy of films for to kick off our Abbas Kiarostami series with... Uh, the Coker Trilogy, which are, for those who are, are unfamiliar, Where is the Friend's House from 1987, uh, Life and Nothing More from 1992, and Through the Olive Trees from 1994. So we'll be getting into those three films to kick off this series. But um, first, I want to direct you guys to Cinematary.com. We got a lot of good stuff there, some reviews of... Uh, number of festivals including the toronto and london film festivals and a review of possessor from jessica um but to kind of kick off part one i did want andrew to direct everybody to the knoxville horror film festival coverage that he and jessica did over the weekend yeah so the knox horror film festival was very different this year uh, because they wanted to do it with uh, as much covid precaution as possible so they um, hosted it at a drive-in about you know a small town away about 30 minute drive from where they usually would have it Um, and they did a different kind of lineup where it was Um, mostly repertory screenings, so classic movies that uh, you kind of wish that you would have gotten to see at the drive-in back in the day. Um, So the big one is Evil Dead 2. Um, They also did um, an old slasher called Pieces and um, Return of the Living Dead and Demons to kind of like goopy uh, uh, B movies uh, that are that are good and, and interesting in different ways um, and they were able to squeeze in two um, new releases um, one of which is called uh, the stylist um, by by a woman whose name I don't think I'll be able to pronounce I'm not gonna try I'm sorry uh, but she's like a, a friend of the the festival and has had um, shorts play there in the past that have been really good and and this film, uh, her feature, her first feature, uh, was really interesting and really well put together in a lot of ways. Uh, Jessica and I both shared like one specific qualm with it um, that that undercut a lot of the great things about the movie. Um, but uh, there are a lot of great things about the movie. So if you are interested in the stylist, uh, you could go check out our our longer thoughts there. And then the other new release was uh, Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor, which Jessica talked about on the podcast several weeks ago, uh, which is just really, really, really good. Like obviously the best horror film of the year. I, I totally agree with Jessica on that. Um, and so I have just mostly linked to her review, but I had a couple of thoughts on that one as well. Um, and if you want to read our thoughts on, on all those things, as well as a, um, a program of silent shorts uh, that was done uh, via live stream, um, all of that stuff is there on cinematary.com. Yeah. So check it out there. Um, you know, friends of the friends of the pod, the Knox Poor Fest folks. So always good to support them. Um, let's go ahead and we're going to, since we have three movies to talk about in part two, we're going to keep part one kind of short or at least as short as we possibly can. Um, but I did want to talk about, I know, um, you all actually caught this as part of the, the SCAD Savannah Film Festival, but I caught it back, uh, in September for, for TIFF. Um, but let's talk a little bit about Wolf Walkers. I mentioned it briefly when I talked about TIFF, uh, just kind of recap stuff real quickly, but this is the latest from Tom Moore who uh, is the director of Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea. Um, this is his, his latest film that he co-directed with uh, Ross Stewart. Um, but Andrew Michael, what did you all what did you all make of Wolfwalkers? I'm going to pass to Michael on this one because uh, I think I, we both liked it a whole lot, but I think Michael is like the, made, the big Wolfwalkers fan. I think it's his favorite movie of the year so far. It is definitely my favorite movie of the year. Um, I think it's awesome. And uh, I really just, I mean, I've enjoyed all of Tom Moore's films, and uh, I think that this is by far the best, and that's high praise because I think like Secret of Kells, for example, which was my previous favorite, um, is one of the best animated films of the past decade. Uh, I really love that film, and then um, Song of the Sea is good as well, and I know Tom Moore wasn't directly behind um, The Breadwinner, but that was also the same uh, studio who did it. And I thought that one was a really strong movie, too. So this is, like, coming off of a really strong lineage. Um, and I think, it like, one of my favorite things about it, um, aside from, like, the plot and, like, characters and stuff are really good, but the thing that really captivated me about this movie and I think pushes it above the other movies is that um, 
the animation style is exquisite. And I think like if you've seen one of the uh, cartoon saloon movies, you kind of know the animation style itself. Like there's these really like like characters who are really um, geometric looking, like they're circles or they're kind of like squarish or things like that. And the backgrounds are like doing interesting things with perspective where it looks like, you know, things are happening, like the uh, the landscape happens at like weird angles in the background and stuff like that. Um, and like kind of that's all like, I don't know which came first, like a chicken and the egg thing, but it definitely is making like the best of the like software and technology that Cartoon Saloon was using, which is like very, it's, I don't think it's like directly flash animation, but it kind of has that like really smooth um, ability to like rotate and like move things um, while also being like, you know, really crisp outlines around characters and stuff. And this movie takes that style, like it recognizably that style but also is like far, far more expressive with it than I um, have ever seen it before. Like characters are no longer like really, they don't, their models feel a lot more free to do things than in other cartoon saloon movies. Um, They're um, really, uh, you know, uh, doing interesting things with like how characters move and like these, like for instance, there's like a pack of wolves uh, that that is like a main part of the movie. And like these wolves kind of like, are almost like liquid where they'll like kind of there'll be like a single like teardrop mass of them like going and then they'll like spread apart into like different masses and stuff like that and it just seems like something that would have not happened in another cartoon saloon movie it like feels so much more fluid and like also it feels more consciously drawn as well like there's like these little sketchy pencil lines around like the wolves and stuff and uh, some of the characters and i think it looks incredible and um, it just like really, really like effectively heightens like this, um, you know, fairly intense and fairly moving, um, story as well. Like it's like this really well told kind of like folk tale-ish story about like, uh, you know, British colonizers, like, you know, uh, forcing the Irish peasants to, you know, uh, chop down this forest where the wolves live and like, you know, the kind of ramifications of that, um. So it's, like, already, like, this moving story that is, like, just elevated by this, like, just exquisite, detailed, and, like, thoroughly unique. Like, it doesn't look like any other animated movie recently. Like, totally, like, within the house style of Cartoon Saloon while also being, like, completely its own thing as well. I just thought it was just really great looking. And, yeah, like, definitely my favorite movie of the year so far. Yeah, I will co-sign all of those things. Um, The animation style is really what takes this over the edge to to being the best cartoon saloon film. I will will agree with that and agree with what Zach said in his review about it as well. Um, To to give another little, like, example of really expressive animation here, um, there's this this cool... um, um, power that the characters, some of the characters have in this movie. What makes them wolf walkers is that they can transform from a human to a wolf, but they don't like their bodies don't transform. They just like their spirit sort of gets um, uh, beamed into this like ethereal wolf creature that becomes flesh. Um, and so there's this really beautiful moment where these two characters who have been wanting to see each other for a long time embrace and when they embrace their little wolf walker souls both kind of like spiral out of them and then pirouette around each other and embrace in the sky above the characters um and it has this you know beautiful yellow glow to it and it's just so it it feels so much more fluid and so much more alive than some of the blocky clunky animation that i did think was really beautiful in the the earlier cartoon saloon films um i think i maybe even talked in on this podcast about how much i admire the way they use um you know uh geometric patterns that kind of resemble sacred geometry that you would see in cathedrals and mosques and stuff like that uh, because they are so often talking about religious stories whether those stories are um uh like early early uh like anglo-saxon uh, monks uh or or you know um the, the I, I forget, mm-hmm. is it Iran where the, the breadwinner takes place? Uh, like Muslim communities in Iran? I want to say it's uh, Afghanistan. But... Afghanistan, okay, yeah. And here, they the the there's a lot less of that specific type of thing, um, but it kind of opts for the more like lush, natural 
um, you know, beautifully layered um, art style that you might associate with like Studio Ghibli, which is a comparison that um, Zach made in his review. Um, so some of the, the influences here, or the connections here, they really wear on their sleeve. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Um, I mean, there's a comparison to be made to Princess Mononoke. Uh, there's a comparison to be made to um, uh, The Witch, funnily enough. Um, and also, Michael and I were remarking while watching the movie um, that it reminded us of some sequences in The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess, which is not one of the better <laughs> Legend of Zelda games, but it does have some really evocative imagery in it when you go into the Twilight realm and uh, you're kind of seeing the world as a wolf and there's like interesting uh, colors and um, you know th- things glowing um, all around you. Um, and I was often d- kind of distracted by the plot of this movie because of just how beautiful it looked. I would just kind of get obsessed with a detail or a texture or something and I would forget to pay attention to the things the characters were saying. Um, but the, the dialogue is really great and the story is really great and I think this is probably the most complex narrative that that cartoon saloon has presented as well um i think that in their past work um it has often been um in the case of something like song of the sea uh very personal and sentimental uh or in the case of secret of kells um a pretty straightforward like good versus evil narrative and here um, the evil that the characters are kind of caught within is like a larger structural evil and the um, kind of the social forces that um, coerce various characters into doing things that they uh, don't want to do but really have no choice but to do because of the historical time period and material conditions of their lives. Um, and there's a lot of imagery of like chains and cages and things like that in this movie. And um, they're, they're really... Um, getting into some um you know interesting stuff with like to what extent do we ever have free will um uh and to what extent is our free will always kind of hampered by the historical moment we are living within um that you know that that is a more um profound like thematic um uh like um forest to be to be lost within than um you know the the cartoon saloon movies that that i have you know watched and loved and admired previously so this is just you know um it is even better than the bar they had already set like you guys have already said um and i'm really excited for more people to watch it yeah it was really interesting i got to speak with um with Tom Moore and Ross Stewart, the, the co-directors and they, and I, one, I was happy that they made that connection to the witch. I knew, I knew Andrew would, would appreciate it. It was kind of, he talked about how Tom Moore talked about how they screened that for the, the animators before they made the movie. And a lot of the, of the folks hadn't seen it before. And so they watched that and then they were like, we're going to make this type of movie. And he's like, no, no, no. It's like this, but for kids. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, but it was really interesting. We talked a lot about, um, you know, just, and this is more broader. It's not, you know, this is more broader about cartoon saloons output kind of to Michael's initial point. Um, but they talked about how they, they are really obsessed with, with folklore and just the, the nature of storytelling and how you can kind of weave these um, kind of larger narrative plot beats like you're talking about Andrew into this, this for lack of a better phrase, kid's story, because there's something, you know, just the nature of folklore uh, allows you to, that it kind of resonates more with a, with a, with a kid's story and a folk tale. And especially, you know, again, this, the animation style is just so there's just something, um, like comforting at least to me like comforting and really um i i just it it really stands out to me over like pixar or uh you know recent disney or a lot of the a lot of the studios also making animation today there's just really something that seems um it's almost like uh there's like care put into it more than the others which i don't know if it's the right way any any last things on Wolfwalkers before we we head into part two? Um, I mean, I agree with you, Michael. I think it's I don't know if it's number one, but it's definitely one of my favorites of the year. Same, yeah. Um, I'm glad that uh, um, Cartoon Saloon was able to work with a bigger budget and a bigger canvas to make this movie. Uh, I guess because of the backing of Apple TV Plus. Um, 
But I am sad that the movie will probably be stuck on Apple TV Plus, like we talked about last week with uh, the Sofia Coppola film. Um, I'm worried that people won't watch it. So, you know, this is us doing our civic duty as film critics and saying like, hey, there's a really interesting uh, thing on this platform that you're probably uh, not looking at 24-7. Please take the extra effort to seek it out. Yeah. Well, the bigger issue also is there won't be a... Uh, like a like a physical media release of it, which is oh man, I, I hope that well, G Kids also has it. G Kids is this will do a physical release where people might have a chance to rent it even if they don't have Apple TV Plus, or is this like an exclusive? It's an exclusive, but you could uh, you know recommendation everybody. You can uh, get a free trial and just roll with that, and then so you got a free trial, watch Wolf Walkers, and then there. Yeah, yeah. this is a real like uh, Beyonce Lemonade to in dis in um. Oh, shoot. What's the Jay-Z streaming service? Title. Yeah, this is a real title with Beyonce's Lemonade situation, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> All right. Well, no, I, I high recommend on going to Apple TV. I think um, I, oh, I, I'm now I'm thinking of I don't remember when it's uh, when is this uh, coming out on uh, on Apple TV? It's on in December. I think it might be out now. No, uh, Wikipedia oh, says December. December 11th. OK, so, uh, yeah, on December 11th check it out um i think yeah you can get a free trial and then just i think it's like seven day free trial and you can watch that and i guess you can watch on the rocks if you really want to i wouldn't recommend it but there you go um all right we're gonna take a short break we'll be back talking about the coker trilogy after this hey cinematary listeners andrew here during this break in the show i'd like to mention that cinematary does want your money you can give us your money at patreon.com slash cinematary, where you can chip in a small fee of about $5 a month, you know, the price of a fancy coffee, in exchange for shout-outs in every episode, the opportunity to choose movies we cover on the show, and bonus episodes every month in which we talk about more movies as well as other miscellaneous stuff. In the past, we've just been humbly asking for you to share the show and engage with us, and we would still love for you to do those things. You can tweet us at Cinematary, send us an email, uh, Z-A-C-H at Cinematary.com, leave us a review on iTunes, all that stuff. But Cemetery has grown a ton in the past few years due to the hard work of a bunch of writers, myself included, who haven't been paid for their labor, which is sadly a pretty normal thing. We record things and write things for free, you listen to and read them for free, and the only people getting paid are like Apple and Google, which is depressing. So if you appreciate what we do, if you feel like there's some sort of value being exchanged here and you'd like more of it, help us normalize paying people by going to patreon.com cinematary and chipping in $5 a month. We would truly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show. of episode 324 of Cinematary. In this part, we'll be talking about three movies. That's a, this is a, well, it's not really a Cinematary first, but three relatively longer movies. We've done shorts before, so uh, we're going to be talking about the Coker Trilogy. Um, all three are directed by Abbas Kiarostami, um, and the term, the Coker Trilogy, was actually coined by film theorists and critics rather than Kiarostami himself. Um, the director resisted the designation and notes that the films are connected only by the accident of place, uh, you know, referring to the, the name Coker of the village in North Iran. <laughs> that's not true, though. They're connected by say, a lot. Say, <laughs> that, that seems so preposterous to me that he would say that they're only just taking place in the same location. Like, these are movies that are building off one another yeah. consciously <laughs> like this the second movie could be called where is the kid from where is the friend's house and then the third movie is like a meta um like reenactment of the creation of the second movie like 
How can you say that it's just the location? That's ridiculous. Well, I guess he, if, if, if there was going to be a trilogy, he views, he says that it should be between the last two and Taste of Cherry. That makes That's no sense. Taste, of, Taste of Cherry. I mean, I was reminded of Taste of Cherry a lot watching uh, the last two movies, for sure. Yeah, but it doesn't connect to the other two except thematically. <laughs> well, it, it connects to the two in that you're watching cars driving along roads for long periods of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but are we going to, include like someone in love or, or or something like that as well or close up like cars are in all his movies um, jonathan rosenbaum in 2015 called kiarostami the greatest living filmmaker and called the trilogy of films quote sustained meditations on singular landscapes and the way ordinary people live in them obsession uh Obsessional quests that take on the contours of parables, concentrated inquiries that raise more questions than they answer, and comic as well as cosmic poems about dealing with personal and impersonal disaster. Um, so let's, let's start with Where is the Friend's House um, from 1987. It stars Babak and Ahmed Amapur, um, and it's inspired by the Sharab Shapiri poem uh, that follow, in the film. The film version follows an Iranian schoolboy who... Um, is literally looking for his friend's house. He has to return the notebook because that kid got laid out by the teacher earlier that day <laughs> on that notebook. The kid, um, the kid is actually going to be expelled if he doesn't turn in his homework one day, which is like very intense. As a teacher, I feel like I can say that. <laughs> I audibly said, "Damn!" Like when that teacher is laying into him. Um, Where is the friend's home? Our friend's house was Kiarostami's first film to gain major international attention, and he referred to it as the mother of all his work to follow. Um, he actually initially wasn't going to direct it, but he he had just done the screenplay, but ended up you know directing it as well. Um, but yeah, let's uh, let's let's get into that one. I th- you know we, we we I mentioned off mic. I think this is out of the three, it's probably my favorite. It's very straightforward. Um, I mean, it's literally in the title. Um, but also it's one of those, there's a lot more going on. Um, so yeah, Michael, what did you make of, uh, where's my friend's house? I like this movie a lot. Um, I think I like the second movie better for ranking favorites here, but, uh, I think this movie is super good. And I was struck. I mean, I've seen a handful of, uh, Kiarostami's movies, like close up I've seen and certified copy and all, and they're all very like structurally and thematically dense movies. And it's not like this movie has nothing going on, but it is like super straightforward compared to those other movies. Like there's nothing meta going on. It's like literally like it's a very like classically structured plot in which like there is like a conflict that's set up at the beginning of the story. And everything that happens in the story or in the movie is like related to playing out iterations of that conflict as a character tries to deal with it. And like I was completely caught off guard by just how like like immediate and enjoyable this movie was, which I mean, I've enjoyed Kiarostami's movies in the past a lot, but like this was just like, like just like just a purely pleasurable movie in a way that I wasn't expecting. And I really enjoyed that. Um, it was, it was super nice and like really good uh, child actor performances. Um, and I don't know if that's aided by his like uh, penchant for doing this kind of like pseudo documentary style, uh, and maybe that gets more naturalistic performances. But um, I I really like it, and it's it's like really funny at times. Like this kid and his this like Sisyphean task to try to find his friend's house <laughs> is like you know like it just is increasingly absurd. Like how like what he has to go through to find this this guy's house. And then, like, by the end, it's also extremely moving. Like, it is a movie, like a lot of Kiarostami's movies, it is a movie about, like, ultimately, like, the value of human connection and human decency, like, in the face of, like, absurdity. And I think it's, I I really liked it. And it was just, like, a really good time. A good, good like, 80-minute, 85-minute movie. Um, I watched this, actually, at school, um, be during our in-service day. <laughs> Don't tell Knox County schools, but... Uh, <laughs> I, that was also nice too. I had been like doing lots of grading and like intense work, and I was like, I'm gonna take a, my lunch break to watch this this movie, and I was kind of prepping for something like a little bit like heady, and I got this movie, which is a nice surprise. Yeah, this movie is so good. Like, I can I totally understand why 
this movie was so popular and so successful for Kurosami that he basically makes two other movies about this movie <laughs> because it's just it's just so good. Um, I mean, I'll co-sign a lot of things you said about it, Michael. Um, it is a really purely enjoyable movie in a way that a lot of Kurosami's movies aren't because of how challenging and intellectual they can be. Um, and it's also a surprisingly funny movie. Like I laughed out loud several times watching this movie alone in my house. Um, like a lot of the humor comes from the back and forth between children and adults and like the, the question loops that they get stuck in. Like there's the one at the beginning where he asks his mom, like, I need to go return this notebook to my friend. She's like, you need to do your homework and then you can go play, but I need to return this to my friend. Well, you need to do your homework and then you can go play, but I need to return this. And they go around and around and around like a dozen times. And the funniest iteration of this, I think is, um, when he's in the nearby town and he finds some pants uh, up on a clothesline that he thinks are kind of look like his friend's pants. And he knocks on a door of a woman nearby. She's like this really old, you know, uh, um, you know, infirm looking woman. And he says, do you know whose pants those are? And they're not even in like view of the pants. And she's like, I don't know. And she's like, but whose pants are they? I don't know. But whose pants are they? I don't know. Can you come look at the pants with me? I can't. I'm sick. Come look at the pants with me. I can't. I'm sick. But come look at the pants with me. Whose pants are they? Uh, it, it's like it captures something very singular about the way that kids of this age um, try to interact with other people um, that I've, I don't know if I've ever seen on screen before. And I really, really like the... Um, the way that it also kind of functions as a as like a bad teacher movie too like the movie is fr is framed by oh my gosh. these two <laughs> scenes of just the the cruelest teacher in the world but like he's not cruel in any sort of you know miss hannigan way where he he's not like this out, outsized monster or anything like that he's just cruel in the way in the mundane way that lots of teachers are cool which is that he just like has a temper and no patience and he yells at his kids all the time like when we first see him he he shows up to class late <laughs> he is late and he starts yelling at the kids for like being rambunctious in the classroom before he gets there um and then he starts yelling at one kid for not having a notebook and he starts yelling at another kid for um, for like being under his desk and i also really laughed really hard at the kid's response like but my back hurts <laughs> i had to be under my desk because my back hurts like these are the kinds of uh teacher student interactions that like no one else really gets to enjoy outside of the context of of this movie i guess um but i will say on the teacher note Andrew, uh, another thing that I thought was enjoyable and also relatable as like a teacher, although I'm not like this really, I hope not, is that like there's this extended sequence in which he picks up a kid's notebook and is like explaining to the other students like this is why you need to put your assignments <laughs> oh my God. in the notebook in sequential order. And he's flipping through he's it like, and like one of the pages is just like a drawing. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of the despicable me joke of like, I sit on the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> And then, like, he's like, the reason why you need to do this is so that I can flip this open and see, I flip back and can see, oh, this is what you did a month ago. Here's what you did two months ago. And, like, I think, like, I honestly think, like, most teachers are, like, kind of addicted to their own, like, formatting in this way, too, where, like, in order to make their own, like, you know, uh, logistics of teaching easier, you, like, really hammer in a lot of instructional time onto, like, here's how you need to format this so that it will make my evaluation of it easier. And he spends, like, so long explaining to the class, like, how the notebook, he's, like, opening the pages. He's like, see, this is a month ago. Just like I said, I could flip back a month ago and see. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really good example of an authoritarian teacher, like a mundane authoritarian teacher. In, um, like, educational psychology uh, classes um, in university, you get taught about the difference between an authoritarian teacher and an authoritative teacher. An authoritative teacher is a teacher who um, gets respect from their students because the students respect them and the students um, believe, like they truly believe that the teacher knows what they're talking about. An authoritarian teacher is a teacher who demands respect or else. And like no, none of the students actually like the teacher, but they may go along with what the teacher says because they're like afraid for their life or whatever. Um, and, you know, the, the, the movie is uh, framed like the gosh 
you know, the second teacher scene at the very end. It's just like so beautiful exactly where this movie ends. I feel like I probably shouldn't even say it because I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen this movie. But one of the best endings of a movie I've seen in a really long time. Like it ends on just the perfect line and then we immediately cut to credits. We don't need anything else um, after that line. Um and yeah, I, I mean, th- those are some of my general thoughts. Um, a more like shallow thought is that like uh, this is the most adorable child actor in the world, and like he he's just like constantly making doe eyes at the camera and every and every uh, actor in the, in the film. Um, and yeah, I there's you do like want to see him when he shows up or he supposedly is going to show up in the second film. And then when he shows up in the third film, it's like, holy shit, it's the kid. And he's, he's uh, you know, 10 years older or whatever. Um, so he has such a great presence uh, for being such a young actor. Well, I guess he's actually, I, I read somewhere that he, he and his brother pop up in the second movie, but it's not as explicit. Um, they're just like hanging out in the background. <laughs> if, if you have a good eye, you know, it's that, it's that Kiro Stami cinematic universe. You just got to be really on that cue. Also, like, I mean, I guess this is kind of a spoiler, but you, like, there's an explicit shot of them at the end of the second movie, right? Well, they're very far away. You can't uh, okay. see them, you right? You wanted to see that. Yeah. yeah. Those doe eyes again, I guess. I got <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's also, you know, you m- mentioning your point um, about, like, the, the, the question loops. Personally, my favorite was just the whole loop that he gets into very late in the film when he meets the... Uh, the door and window <laughs> maker in town. Oh yeah. And there's that <laughs> oh my whole, gosh, the best yeah. scene to me was when uh they've like walked all over the place. They've they've dropped off the notebook. Um or at least tried to drop off the notebook where he thinks he's supposed to go. And uh the and the guy's like huffing and puffing and he's just like oh, all this all this walking and talking is, is really tiring me out. I got to stop talking. It's it's making me tired. And the kid goes, well, then, yeah, stop talking because he's just been rambling the entire damn time. <laughs> and the guy just goes... I don't yeah, want to hear about your door. No, nah, I can't do that. And then goes into this... And then I made this window. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and by the time we get there, by the time he's in this town and he's he's so close to his destination and he's met this guy who's going to take him there, the sun has, has gone down way low in the horizon. It's like kind of this um, dark, uh, almost, almost like otherworldly atmosphere has kind of consumed the film. I felt like I was all of a sudden watching a Pedro Costa movie or something. And there, there felt like there was something unreal about the space that we had entered into. And I think that that, um, that feeling of like there being kind of a supernatural or a spiritual element to this moment in the film is, is kind of heightened by ultimately what happens where he is shown exactly where the friend's house is and he just can't do it. He turns back. I was reminded of like the parable uh, of the door in um, like Franz Kafka's The Trial or something like that or, or like the Orpheus and Eurydice myth. Um, like turning back right before uh, you get to your your goal. I, I I don't know exactly what to do with it, but it, it felt like there was some sort of like um, emotional or spiritual resonance to that scene that um, that I, I want to you know keep well, exploring and go have, back to. You also have real quick um, just kind of in terms of like the the almost fairy tale elements of it, the like the way he enters that second town. I forgot what the name was um, or. Yeah, when he leaves Coker and goes to the second town, you have that zigzag hill, and there's almost something like like Alice in Wonderlandy or like very very fairy tale esque of like just the dis, you know the ascent up that hill. We're crossing yeah. the threshold into exactly. the special world. Um, Michael, yes. though, I interrupted you. Oh, I was just gonna like on the 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 ending when he like basically struggles to go to the door. Like it, I I thought that those you know really really meaningful as well because it's like i mean on some level when you've been trying so hard to achieve something and you finally are presented with here are the steps you need to do and you can achieve it like there is something like frightening about it um like and i remember i remember like as a child like there would be times where i would like really really want something or really really want something to happen and then when it happens right before it happens like i would be like wait I actually don't want this to happen, not because I actually didn't want it to happen, but because like all of a sudden, like the, the, the kind of like momentous implications of me having achieved something are like overwhelming. And, 
like it signifies some sort of like change or something. And I think that that's like significant. And that's like, I feel like a common thread throughout these three movies is like all three movies involve like someone really doggedly pursuing something or someone. And at the end of each one, there is like an ambiguity about whether or not the person has the wherewithal to do what they need to do to um, actually, you know, achieve that, that, or, you know, fulfill that quest. And this movie, I think, ends with, like, finding a third way. And, and one of the reasons why it's one of the more straightforward movies is, like, there's a very clear way that even though he doesn't go to the door and give the friend the um, the, the notebook, um, he is still able to find a way to, like, uh, you know, bring, like, some sort of sense of resolution, which is something that, like, I think each movie accomplishes in, like, increasingly vague ways and by until by the third one we're, we're not you have even no sure idea what happens at the end they, <laughs> yeah right you have no idea um but I, I i think also maybe there's like a logistical like actual plot reason why he doesn't give the notebook um and it has to do with the fact that this kid wasn't doing his homework very well to begin with um and i wonder i do wonder if the kid the 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 pursuing kid like was thinking about that and thinking like what is actually best for this my friend like is it to give him the homework and make him do this work or is it that i can do this this like kind of act of kindness for him and save him from humiliation the next day um and i i I wonder if that's like also like going through his head as well but uh anyway like i i really like that that um that scene with the door and it's already kind of a story of sacrifice um you know, on the front end, because, of course, we see his like long protracted fight with his mom about how he absolutely is not going to leave the house until he's finished with his homework. And uh, whenever he he runs off through the gate that it becomes a very tense and suspenseful movie of like, man, this guy's in so much trouble with his mom. Um, so to like take that burden on and then also take the burden on of doing a double amount of homework once he gets back in the middle of the night um, is, yeah, very admirable and, and very like inspirational. Darren said on the podcast when he was here for The Gleaners and I uh, that when he watched the Coker trilogy, it just um, convinced him he needed to be a better person. <laughs> and this is a really great, um, really great encapsulation of yeah, that feeling. Absolutely. Um, let's move on to the second one, Life and Nothing More. It came out in 1992. And this one uh, takes place uh, following a, an earthquake that, that hit the region of Iran where the film, where where's the friend's house was was uh located and shot and so the it it follows a fictional account of a filmmaker and his son traveling to that site to see how the um the stars and, and the folks who were in that movie if they survived the earthquake and um so the, there was actually an earthquake in June of 1990 uh, in the in the region where the film was shot, and so Kiarostami was concerned about the fate of of the two protagonists. So he ended up actually conceiving the idea of the film when he went out there to search for them. Um, but Gunma was, was worried about the. So is the sorry question? Is the main character in that movie supposed to also be Kiarostami? He's, yes. like a, he's like a fictionalized version of it in the same way that in Through the Olive Trees, there's like a fictionalized version of. Right. Well, in that one, it makes it very explicit. I wasn't sure what the identity of that main character was or what his motivation was in uh, the second movie. I feel like it's a riff on Close Up because in Close Up, I mean, I guess you can talk about this when you actually watch Close Up for the podcast. But like Close Up is about like, you know, Kiarostami as himself, like interacting with like. Uh, like a like a fan basically of him who's like constructed this like fiction about Kiarostami and I kind of feel like that this movie is like in direct conversation with close-up as well because it has like a like a kind of fake version of Kiarostami uh, doing something that Kiarostami did but also like kind of like making a fiction out of it okay I really wish I would have known that on the front end I was a little lost at the in the front half of this movie yeah. So this there's a quote that um Kiarostami said about the film. He said it's a very important film in that what uh was filmed was inspired by a journey I made just 3 days after the earthquake and I speak not only of the film itself but also of the experience of being in that place where only 3 days before 50,000 people had died. For the survivors it was as if they had been reborn having experienced death around them. 
the earthquake had happened at four or five in the morning. So in a sense, everybody could have been dead and it was almost accidental that they hadn't died. So I didn't just see myself as a film director here, but also as an observer of people who had been condemned to death. So this was a very big influence on me and the issue of life and death from then on does recur in, uh, in my films. Um, so Michael, what, I guess if you want to lead us off again, I mean, this was your, your favorite of the three. So I guess what stood out about it? Yeah. I mean, I mean, first of all, like this was what I was expecting as a Kiarostami movie. Like it is fully in the mode that I was, uh, expecting from like, based on my prior experiences with him. Um, and so in a way it was, I mean, even though it's not as like straightforward as where's the friend's house, it. Like I like as it started, I I recognized like oh, okay I know how to engage with this movie based on like having seen like close up or taste of cherry or something like that because like we have a man in a car uh, interacting with various people kind of going on a like sort of like ethically charged quest you know trying to like kind of locate some people and because he feels responsible for them in some way um, and so like that it, like. Um, so it was kind of like settling into like a familiar groove in some ways. Um, but I also find it just like, I don't know, it's, I, I, I think it's just really interesting and moving like um, Where's the Friends House. Um, you get this really interesting cross-section of like different people who just kind of float in and out of the movie. Um, in this case, as like the protagonist is driving his car trying to get to Coker um, over like this like really long um road where there's a lot of like closures or like the road's been like kind of uh destroyed by the earthquake and stuff like that and so like um i mean i think it's just like kind of interesting on like just a sociological level to see all these people uh like different types of people or different interesting interactions with people um even just like a really small one like how like the the cars on this road are all like slowed to a stop and he's just like chatting with some dude and he's like, hey, man, can you just, like, back up so I can take a left turn um, into this other road? And the guy's like, yeah, sure, dude. And, like, I don't know. Like, there's just something, like, really warm about some of that stuff um, that I think is just really cool. And I think it fits with, like, the larger idea of, like, depicting this community that is, like, you know, emerged from this tragedy and, like, disaster um, and, like, kind of the life that they find on the other side of that. And, like, there's the scene which later becomes the basis for Through the Olive Branch or Through the Olive Trees uh, the next movie where he talks to this dude who was like married, um, like right after the, the earthquake. Um, and it's just like a really interesting, uh, and again, kind of like in some ways, like warm scene where this guy is just like, well, you know, I was going to get married anyway. And I thought like, you know, you know, with this earthquake, I kind of realized like that, like life is fleeting. And so I got married and, the the movie is like full of little interesting things like that um there's a scene near the end of the movie too where um uh the 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 film director runs across like these two girls who are um in like a like a basically like a tent city that is formed from like kind of refugees from this uh earthquake and he asks them uh where their house is and they point to the tent and he's like no where's your real house and then they like describe like what their actual house is and like i don't know i just think I'm really interested in like, especially in films, like films that kind of uh, show some sort of sense of community or like how societies or, or cultures are built. Um, and this I think is like a real attention to like, how does place shape your relationship to other people? Um, because it's like, like the first movie, it's a movie about like a sort of like responsibility you feel towards someone who you are like distanced from in a long way. And like your, your quest is to like, or the, the protagonist's quest is to like be become like, like journey so that you're in the same place with that person so that you like can like, as a human being, like interact with them and like have like, like you two, like as, as like a collective unit, like are creating something meaningful. And like, I feel like this movie is just full of little moments where like people are juxtaposed in the same environment. And by being in the same environment, there's a sort of like solidarity that they find. And it's like, really lovely i think in, in a lot of ways and and uh i just i just really dug it uh, it was it was really good yeah it is a really warm movie despite the fact that i think formally it's 
much more closed off and challenging uh, than the first film is. They, they have a lot in common in terms of uh, Kiristami's, um, you know, patient, observant style. But the the shots are a lot longer. Often they're a lot wider. Um, you know, there's a there's a scene in Where's the Friend's House where the kid is like sitting on a on a, a staircase calling up to somebody who he thinks is above him, and there were like four cuts just showing different angles of the kid. And I, I, you know, I was thinking that like an older Kiarostami would just have the one cut and let it stay there for a long time. And this movie is that, um, where it just kind of like picks an angle and stays there for an entire scene in a lot of cases. Um, but if you are, uh, you know, willing to kind of key into that and, and, and be looking for the right things or, or direct your attention in the right ways, um, there is so much emotion kind of, uh, bubbling under the surface here. Um, I was also really moved by that the scene of the guy talking about his wedding. Um, that was probably the scene where the, the movie really got me. Uh, it's about halfway through. Um, and I was thinking about like, um, to what extent is the the like moral calculus of like people um, uh, trying to quote unquote go back to normal, live their own lives in the coronavirus pandemic? I mean, people are still trying to like have weddings and specifically um, right now. But of course, like he's not in a position where he's like putting anybody at risk for getting married. Uh, he's just trying to like you know, still find happiness through grief, which is kind of different. But I, I thought that the 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 feeling was similar um, and it was kind of interesting to watch it in this context. Uh, and then, of course, it has a, another great ending that I don't know if I want to spoil it or not, but um, a really, really inspirational, uh, the ending is so inspirational good. moment of like people helping each other and, and, you know, coming together as, as not even necessarily communities, but as strangers, just, I mean, so much of this movie is like him stopping and picking hitchhikers up and just like taking them where they need to go and, and having conversations and not really like having any barriers between him and the people he comes across who are in need of assistance because obviously everybody is in need of assistance. So there's just like this generosity of spirit that the character embodies. Um, and there was something else I was going to say, but I don't remember what it is. Oh, oh, I mean, I already kind of mentioned this, but another thing that that is kind of challenging is the way in which the film just sort of drops you in um, cold um, without giving a whole lot of uh, context for why these people are on their trip. There's actually several moments in the film where a character asks them, why do you want to go to Coker? And right before the character answers, maybe the scene cuts away or they get distracted by somebody else and the, and the question never gets answered. Um, and I guess like the, the context I'm supposed to have is like, oh, well, this is a story about Kiarostami going to visit the actor um, that, you know, he worked with on his last film. But I was just thinking about these people as characters, not necessarily as, you know, a dramatic reenactment of a, of a real event, a real autobiographical event, um, which kind of gets was this is starting to get us into one of the big themes of the Kiarostami series I imagine which is similar to the themes of the Varda series the the line between documentary filmmaking and fiction filmmaking um there were times when I was watching this thinking like oh did he just like get actors to go to the actual aftermath of this earthquake and kind of like make an impromptu movie while the real thing is kind of happening around them uh, but no he he is reconstructing it in a way that's just really believable and it feels kind of like a documentary even though it's not um I was kind of reminded of um, some of the movies of Zha Zhangka, um, Still Life and Mountains Made Apart. Uh, in Still Life, um, it is a is a doc like a quasi documentary fiction film where he's he's constructed this melodrama um, around the um, the uh, taking down of a dam and the flooding of a city. But he's making it when the city is actually being flooded, and so like he's documenting in real time how this community is being destroyed. Um, and then in Mountains Made Apart, you know, that's a completely fictional film, but it, it like jumps around in time um, and lets you sort of take note of the way in which the landscape of um, China, I don't think it's Hong Kong, I think it's mainland China, um, has changed uh, across the like three different time periods of the film. 
Um, and I, I got a similar vibe from this of like, even though we may not actually be watching documentary footage, there's something kind of documentary-esque about it. Um, just like comparing the landscape we see in this movie to the landscape we saw in Where's the Friend's House. You know, we have these massive interstates and like city skylines in the background that just didn't exist there before. Um, just like five years ago. So there's something valuable about that. I'm just like capturing the way this place has changed um, in these films that are kind of in conversation with one another. The one last thing I want to add just, uh, you know, from like a, like a filmmaking level that I was really impressed with uh, in, in the second film was there's that, I can't, I can't, I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but there's that shot where they mentioned there's some fissures ahead, like in the road and he has that like long shot and you can see just like the cracks in the uh like in the hill and he like drives up to it and then it, it it's just such a like the depth of field in that shot is just insane um i just kind of i paused it was one i i i don't usually do that but i paused <laughs> the screen to be like wow this is good cinema uh <laughs> the cinema um the last one from 1994 is Through the Olive Trees. Uh, it's it's about another Iranian director. It's about a director who, uh, during the making of uh, Life and Nothing More, is uh, is acting as the go-between uh, between these two actors. Um, they have a scene in, in Life and Nothing More where the, the, the filmmaker speaks with this newly married couple um, outside of their home and so it follows them where the the lead actor is oh, is in love with the actress and she wants nothing mm-hmm. to do with him <laughs> um, and so and so uh, I don't know this so you know kind of to take to, to uh, y'all's points about the second one that's this one really I wasn't uh, I was really disappointed with because it seemed to me, and maybe maybe a, a rewatch would be necessary. I, I would be, cur- be curious to hear thoughts of other people who have watched the trilogy and, and uh, like it a lot because um, it seems like it loses that that community spirit that we that we were talking about for the for the second film, and it like just focuses on this dude being in love with this woman who has, who wants nothing to do with him. Who like literally it says just, nothing to him in the whole movie. Right. I don't think she, yeah, she has a talk to him in the whole movie. And so I don't know. It, it like, it, it just loses a lot of all of that kind of that morality and that community spirit that it was exploring for, for the first two films to, at least to me, it becomes like this creepy dude stalking this girl for two hours almost. Um, but what did you all make of through the olive trees? Well, the, the, the obvious critique is like a critique that, um, we kind of wrestled with in the shark con series of like, there's a trope in so many shark con movies of him just being, um, relentless in his pursuit of women who do not, are not initially interested in him. Um, and, and the way that that kind of gets navigated in, in SRK movies, um, you know, is, is thorny and, and difficult, but also kind of interesting and rich. Um, and, uh, it'll be a very different movie, but I, I kind of wished that uh, Shah Rukh Khan had just been cast as the, the lead in this movie. And I, I think it would be, a, it would, be a, it would, it would um, redeem itself a little bit for me. But yeah, I, I had the same feeling of like not really caring about the, the central um, conflict of the film, uh, not nearly to the level that I cared in Where's the Friend's House? Um, and also not really feeling much of a connection to any of the tertiary characters either. Um, I mean, maybe this is part partly a, a symptom of how Kiristami is just like in this trilogy, like zooming out more and more um, from, from one film to the next. I don't mean like literally pulling the camera back, but like going to a, a further out layer of metafiction to the point where um, we are not really be- being asked to believe in the reality of any sort of scenario we're being presented with. Um, it's all like we're, we're just constantly reminded of how fake everything is. Um, so like when I see the character who's playing Kiristami, who's not the character who was playing Kiristami in the first film, um, I can't really 
like it's hard for me to buy his interactions with other people as genuine um, because of like the distance that the film has kind of set up for me in the first couple of minutes. And I think that that's probably the point, but I, I didn't really know what to do with that feeling and it didn't make for an enjoyable film watching experience. I don't know. Um, Michael, what about you? I, I mean, I'm, I kind of feel the same way as you guys. I, I was a little bit perplexed by this movie and I feel like, I feel like part of it is so like in the first movie, we have this really immediate story. Um, that's like nice and like a kind of traditionally like movie going way, you know, where we, we get, we caught up in the characters and stories and there's emotional payoff and stuff. And the second movie kind of basically shows like a, like lays a metafiction on that, which is that like the, this narrative in which like the, the director of, you know, presumably that movie um, is searching for the characters in that movie. And it's like a riff on the first movie in the sense of like characters searching for each other. But it also is like showing the artifice of the first movie, but in showing the artifice, it finds something kind of spiritual and meaningful. And then this movie, it says something, there's a line somewhere in the second movie um, where the old man character is talking about how like, well, this is my house in this movie, but it's not really my house in real life. But he says like a film never lies. A film tells its own truth. And I th- I think that that's something that you're supposed to kind of carry with you into the third film, but it didn't quite, um, I didn't really feel it in any sort of visceral way. Right. And like this movie, like, yet, like Andrew said, like yet again, lays another metafiction on it. And I think it, it, for me, at least, it fails to find something spiritually meaningful outside, like in that new layer of metafiction, which maybe meaningfully differentiates it from the first movie um, and like kind of de, uh, you know, mysticize, you know, uh, there's like a demysticism um, from like the second movie to the third movie. But like also like like with like the Shah Khan movies, I have this kind of nagging feeling that like maybe I'm getting it wrong because I don't. Like, I, I've not seen a short con movie where I really felt invested in, like, the romance too much because of, like, the specific, like, cultural tropes that it embraces, like, the, the, the dogged pursuit of someone who doesn't care about you at the beginning. Um, and this one, like, does that to an extreme because, like, they barely know each other, right? Like, they're just on this film set together and he becomes infatuated with her. And, like, so, like, my interpretation of the movie, like, I mean, maybe I'm missing the point. Like, maybe there is something supposed to be meaningful about this guy's dogged pursuit of her. Like, in the second movie... People like uh, just try to pick up their lives again after this disaster in in a way that feels like absurd in the context, but is like supposed to be like meaningful and optimistic. And including the scene in which uh, this movie is about, like the scene where he's talking to the newlyweds and they're like, "We just got married," you know. And the guy's like, "Isn't that kind of weird that you just got married like right after an earthquake?" And they're like, "Yeah, but you know, we're never. We just got is you know basically like." um, uh, You know, seize the day kind of kind of mindset, you know, and that's kind of the mindset of this guy's romance. Like one side romance is like, there's this woman here I'm infatuated with and I just got to go after her. And like, to me, that seems so much less meaningful than like, we decided to get married even quicker now that there was an earthquake. Like, but I mean, I I don't know. Like, I mean, maybe for someone like, you know, within like the, the culture of like, you know, the, the, you know, heterosexual gender dynamics, of like, you know, mid nineties, um, Iran, like maybe that is meaningful. And I don't know, maybe I'm, which is certainly maybe, the case with, um, India and, and the context of Shah Rukh Khan's movies as it's been explained right. to me. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So like, I, I can't decide, is he demysticizing the concept by making some sort of absurd quest this guy does? Um, or is he simply embracing a cultural trope that I'm like losing the meaning that I myself just don't have access to the meaning of at this moment. And the only clue is like the very end of the movie ends with like a note of ambiguity, um, that is like profoundly ambiguous in a way that like the other movies aren't. And it's like literally distant. Like you see these two characters walk into the, the hills basically. And there's an interaction that they have that we never find out what that interaction is. And well, so, it's a like, mirrored. It's a mirrored shot of the last shot of the um, second movie. Right. Um, and the last shot in that in that movie, movie we're we're watching cars try to go up a hill, and it's very clear what is happening and why everything is happening and what you should feel at every turn. Um, and the music kind of swells to um, kind of direct your emotions. And here, 
the music does a similar turn where it starts out kind of melancholy. I don't know if it's minor key or not, but then all of a sudden it like really picks up and becomes hopeful and optimistic. But the reason it becomes hopeful and optimistic is completely unknown to the to the viewer because everything right. is so far away. And so like maybe that is indicating that like there is something like there's a way in which we're being denied something meaningful by the movie itself. And we're maybe supposed to like view the relationship with a sort of distance. Um, but I, I just don't know. Like I, I would be interested to see like, uh, you know, what Kiarostami himself said about that or like, you know, maybe like Iranians, like how they responded. But to me, like the major thing that was missing here was that the central quest had no significance to me. Whereas in the second one and the first one, those central quests were like deeply like meaningful and I could understand what they were going after. Yeah. And to to make the like dumb guy point, I was bored <laughs> um, in this movie. Um, this The whole second half is them redoing that guy's scene from movie number two again and again and again. And he keeps getting the line wrong or something else happens that distracts him or, or you know, something happens offset that they have to redo it. She won't talk to him. She won't talk to him. And you see the, the scene like, I don't know, 10 times. And it's all done in, you know, Karastami's slow cinema format. And I've heard, I've seen some people in Letterboxd describe it as kind of like an absurd comic scene, but I did not laugh. I was just like, do we really have to do it again? Okay, I guess we're going to do it again. Um, I actually really like that part, though. Like, okay. There's like two parts <laughs> that me. I really like. And the first is the opening scene in which it's like a meta-meta scene in which, like, the director is like auditioning people to play the role that of, of the current movie. And really like it's that. like really fun. Yeah. It's really fun because he's like asking all the people who are auditioning, do you want me to film this? And they all kind of shout like, yes, film it. We want to be in the movie. And like, that's really fun. So I like that. And then the second part that I really, really connected with was the repeated like takes and like, yeah, it's like kind of an absurd comedy, but also like one of the things that Kiarostami is like really interested in is uh, iterative, ideas and like doubling or tripling things and like this whole trilogy is like that you know it's like iterating on like a central premise but then like uh you know it's also like in like someone in love right you have like people who pretend to be like related to one another and that's also true in certified copy as well and like this idea of like there being copies of things and like this is like kind of turning that into like a like connecting that to like film itself in which like film is making copies of things, right? So, like, what we see in a film, there are, like, copies and copies and copies of that because there's been multiple takes, right? And so what we're seeing is just, like, one iteration of, like, a concept. And so, like, this is, I I don't know, it's just kind of, like, really interesting for me to watch, like, all the different, like, minute ways in which these scenes are different and, like, why they're rejected is, like, kind of interesting to, like, like, you know, like you guys are saying, one, like, she's... She's, she forgets her line or doesn't talk to him or whatever. Um, in another, like, it, it's just like, I don't know. Like, it's it's just interesting to me in the same way that, like, uh, you know, I don't know, like, you know, certain, like, uh, minimalist music where you kind of repeat a note a lot is really interesting because, like, after a while, the repetition in and of itself is, like, what's interesting. You start noticing all these, like, really small details and stuff that's kind of cool and it's, like, kind of hypnotic, too. But, um I don't know. Um, I I actually like that part a lot. Um, anything? Oh, well, I, I guess uh, you don't. We don't have to get into the uh, the political nature of it. But Andrew, was this a nice uh, nice reprieve from election night? <laughs> no, um, I was originally planning on watching all three back to back on election night, and because of other things that happened throughout the day, I wasn't able to watch all three on election night. I watched the first two on election night, which was beautiful it was great i loved being able to do that um and then i unfortunately uh had to watch the third one with full knowledge of the like weird limbo that we're caught in with this election and so that might have been one of the factors of me um you know feeling a little more more distant from this one because my mind is just elsewhere i'm distracted um and that's not really a place you can be and enjoy a nice kiristami film um so yeah, um, I I fully acknowledge that maybe me not getting this movie is is also maybe my fault. Um, but you know, I'll also say that like 
I watched all this before, like a lot of the election coverage. So, like, I, I turned, I probably finished this at like 6 p.m. on Tuesday, which also is kind of weird to be talking about this because presumably our listeners will know things. They, that they we don't. know the result of the um, election. We do we're not. We're recording this on Wednesday night, in which, like, some things seem clear, but other things were a little bit up in the air. So, a kind of a, a weird, like, Kiarostami moment, like, that we're frozen in. <laughs> Um, I, I'm where, not as the, as somebody working at the the newspaper of one of the counties in Georgia where it's it's coming down to the wire at. I don't view it as a Kiarostami moment. <laughs> I, <laughs> it's a horror movie moment. It is. It's more possessor, <laughs> like we talked about in the first half. <laughs> but here we are finding community in like the the chaos, right? Um, Dear know. listener, we hope you are living in a world where Joe Biden is the decided victor of the presidential election. Uh, and of course, we apologize if you're not. Or better yet, that the kid from Where Is My Friend's House is some, somehow jumped in and he's actually president of America. Elect this child. It's like the, <laughs> the like Jeb Bush memes uh, where like the whole yes. map is Jeb, except this time oh it's my just God. like Ahmed. Like, or please please make this. Zach, <laughs> ma- make and tweet this meme immediately. I'll get right on it. Um, <laughs> all right, well... Um, that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on, on Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary, and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary, where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Um, check out our Patreon. We had a film theory and chill to, to get you through the spooky season. Um, we'll have a new one this month, but uh, cinematary, or patreon.com slash cinematary. Thank you so much to our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsom, Christina Daughtry, Cindy Roberts, Harry Eskin, Hell Yes, Small World, Joe Jordan, Maggie, Ron Hayes, The Kittiest of Kittens, Titus Arthur, Tyler Chandler, and Whitney Rio Ross. Thank you so much for your patronage. Uh, thank you, Andrew. I'll get, you know, that's that's just for the meme. Um, next week, we'll be uh, continuing our Kiara Ostami series with 1990s Close Up, uh, which was my intro into him as a director. So I'm excited to revisit that. I haven't seen it since I watched it for the first time. So it's a good one. Um, until then, thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.